Welcome, my friends. I'm really pleased that you're joining me today. And I think that I have some incredible news to share with all of you. As I've indicated in the title, I have a, a sense that the events of next year have been foretold and that we're in for Be'ezrat Hashem, a very friendly and wonderful future. But before I begin the actual lecture today, I want to begin with a small preface. The first thing I have to tell all of you is I'm not a seer, I'm not clairvoyant, I'm not special in any way, shape, or form. I'm an ordinary person. I don't have anything on, so to speak, good authority, at least not for myself. What I do have for you today is an incredible manuscript, a note that was penned by the Rebbe nearly 30 years ago, in December of 1990. It's not a secret note. It wasn't discovered under a pile of paper. It hasn't really come to light in a physical or literal sense. It was printed 30 years ago. This has been in plain view ever since late winter, or I should say early winter, late December of 1990. As a yeshiva student, 30 years ago, I studied this sicha. It never somehow resonated to anybody in the way it has begun to resonate over the last couple of weeks. I don't know who the first one who noticed this was, but the buzz has slowly begun to spread. And many people, like myself, have gone back to that edited talk of the Rebbe and studied and restudied it and are walking away open-mouthed, quite amazed. Some of you have asked me, why couldn't I just share it with you in a word or two? We'll give you a little bit of a hint. The truth is, the Rebbe didn't really say specifically and directly, I'm about to tell you now how things are going down in 30 years from now. He didn't say there's going to be a pandemic, Things are going to be miserable in 5780, but in 5781, everything's going to turn and you're going to be looking at a fantastic couple of months and a year that'll follow. He didn't say that. But if you will follow this sicha, this edited talk, we're talking about six printed pages. That's 12 sides. We're talking about over 140 sources and footnotes ranging from a half a sentence to small paragraphs. We're talking about something that has taken me, and I'm not that smart, but it's taken me probably over 10 hours of serious study to be able to think I understand the contents of what the Rebbe conveyed. And I'm going to present that material to you. You be the judge. I didn't tell you what was going to happen. I can't make any bold claims. I can tell you that if we look at this open-eyed and with a sense of integrity, I believe that there's much cause for optimism. And if we aren't wrong, the coming year is going to be really incredible. A second little preface. I know that many of you watching are not Hasidim. Some of you aren't Jewish. That's good. I welcome everybody's participation. 
I fully understand that there are many skeptics out there. Some of you may not see the Rebbe the way I or my fellow Hasidim do. Some of you may not view him in the same sacred sense. I get that. I understand and appreciate it. I still think that you'll be impressed by what we are going to study today, what's presented. And I still think that even if you're a very rational or scientifically inclined person, you can find inspiration nonetheless. You know, to kind of make this point in a fully articulate way, I've chosen to share with you a couple of sentences out of the book that was authored by the late Rav Adin Evin Yisrael, better known as Steinsaltz. He wrote a book about the Rebbe called My Rebbe. Rav Steinsaltz or Rav Evin Yisrael was a scientist, a methodical, highly brilliant, highly rational person. He had a unique way of putting lofty, mystical, spiritual things into everyday language that people could relate to. In the 14th chapter of his book, which is essentially a book about the Rebbe, as he saw him, he, he entitles this chapter Connection with the Divine. And I want to share a few of these sentences with you before we begin. It opens, the Rebbe's miracles. Let's begin by defining what we mean by a miracle. A miracle is an occurrence radically outside the normal, natural flow of events, especially when it comes to the laws of cause and effect. Hundreds of such miracles are ascribed to the Rebbe. Mostly, we're not talking about magic-like miracles, when something suddenly appears or disappears, all in a moment. The Rebbe did not perform miracles in a non-natural way that were immediately perceived by others. Rather, the miracles ascribed to the Rebbe might be called epistemological miracles. They were miracles of perception and cognition, about seeing and knowing what others cannot. Some of the, these reports can be characterized as predictive. Others seem to enable the petitioner to change the future, and a third kind appear to change reality. For many Hasidim, miracles are an integral part of the Rebbe's powers. He goes on to document many, many of such events. And then later on in the same chapter, he states, and I'm reading, he, I have not heard of an instance in which the Rebbe made a prediction that did not turn out to be as he had foretold. The onlooker, he says, may be skeptical. Or he or she may say, the Rebbe warned me of something, and indeed it happened. But good friends could have told me the same. He goes on to talk about the Rebbe urging people to check their tefillin and their mezuzahs when they had issues or problems. Mistakes found in these texts were seen as examples of the Rebbe's miraculous power, he writes. However, he acknowledges that the Rebbe may have known that scriptural passages like a person's mezuzah or their tefillin were so often incorrect that he simply cautioned about the possibility of errors as a matter of course. He says that the Rebbe's outstanding memory and his ability to integrate information 
might also have played a role. He met thousands of people over the course of years, and each was a source of information. The average person meets new people only rarely, and most of the information comes largely from filtered sources, such as the media. The Rebbe's memory was combined with an unusual ability to correlate information. An unusual trait, but Rav Evan Yisrael says, not miraculous. And then he says, Nevertheless, it is clear to me that the Rebbe was indeed a seer. With all of the reservations and the ultimate explanations that are possible, I believe that there is something more to the Rebbe's insight. From the Bible on, Jewish history is filled with miracles and miracle workers who are not bound by the natural world. It seems to me, Rav Adin wrote, that the Rebbe was very much a part of this tradition. And he goes on to list a number of stories, personal stories, in which the Rebbe said things that nobody could have known that turned out to be exactly as he said. Further on in the chapter, he writes, I believe that much of the Rebbe's power came through Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit within a person that connects him with a reality beyond our world. In Judaism, Ruach HaKodesh is the ability to know things in the present or the future. Although a personal bond with the world, through a personal bond with the world of the spiritual. Those with the gift of Ruach HaKodesh describe it as a kind of sightseeing, perceiving or experiencing things that are physically or temporarily at a distance. And I'll leave it at that. I just wanted to put it out there that I fully understand and appreciate that many of you will not be able to wrap your heads around the idea that the Rebbe had prophetic intuition and that the Rebbe was saying things, especially in those last years of his terrestrial life, that have only now begun to become understood. But with this preface, which I think makes this available for everybody, chassid and non-chassid alike, I'd like to direct your attention towards an edited talk that the, Le- the Rebbe delivered on Shabbos Parshas Vayigash. The year was Tavshin Nun Aleph, or 5751. This is December, December of 1990. And the last little piece of information before I begin to curate the information is a little bit historical. The Rebbe notes in the Sicha that the date, the Hebrew date, as a date of great importance to Hasidim. The date is Hey Tavis, the fifth of Tavis. And to try to conflate a lot of information into a couple of sentences. There was a very, very severe challenge in the mid-80s that the Lubavitch movement suffered. A, a relative, a wayward relative of the previous Rebbe maintained that once a Rebbe passes on, his lasting power is really irrelevant. It's a thing of the past, he said. And if, if the Rebbe passed on, meaning his own grandfather, then his possessions were now to be divvied up amongst relatives. And he wanted to lay claim to some of the sacred library that the Friedrich Rebbe had risked his life to assemble and to preserve. The Rebbe saw this as a challenge to the very core heart, to the very essence of what Hasidus believes in. You see, we, 
in the Torah tradition believe that tzaddikim b'misoson kuruyin chayin, that the righteous, even after they've passed, are considered to be still alive, very much a part of the fabric of this world. And as such, the Rebbe believed that this challenge cut to the very core of what Hasidim believe in. Unfortunately, this is a wayward relative who did not have the interest in following the Torah or its ideas or ideals. There was no choice at the time but to take this to federal court. Now, that a federal court should understand that a Rebbe is not a private individual, that everything about him, including his physical and material reality, belongs to the community, to the Jewish people, was something that was, let's just say, of concern. That the federal court of the United States, the world's superpower, would be able to wrap its head around and affirm the idea of the continued, ongoing spiritual life of a tzaddik, even after his terrestrial life has ended, was certainly something that gave many pause and was a cause for great anxiety. On Hey Tavis, on the 5th of Tavis, in the year Tavshim Zion, which corresponds to 1987, the federal court ruled that the Lubavitch movement had been vindicated, that Sadiqim did indeed live on, and that the Rebbe's possessions, like the Rebbe himself, belonged to the community and ultimately to the nation of Israel. This is a big deal. It's a big deal because when a federal court system, when the world's superpower is able to appreciate and in fact affirm a Torah truism, it represents an enormous step forward in what we call the concept of diru betachtonim, the notion that in the end our world would not conceal spiritual truths, but when Mashiach comes, will in fact reveal these truths. That God's presence and that all Torah ideas and ideals will someday soon become a part of the fabric of our everyday existence. And that when we make God's name known, and when we promulgate God consciousness, and when Torah truisms become a part of what we shall call everyday life or existence, something remarkable has happened. So this is the history, this is the background. It's several years after what was perceived to be and celebrated as a great victory and a leap forward for the cause of Yiddishkeit and Hasidus. And the Rebbe is addressing his Hasidim, thousands of Hasidim who are thronged at 770 Eastern Parkway, Lubavitch World Headquarters, in the cavernous space Medrash, without a microphone or notes. The Rebbe, as he does almost every Shabbos, speaks for hours and hours. There are brief intervals in which the Hasidim assembled sing. Some of them toast the Rebbe L'chaim and the Rebbe responds. And then the Rebbe continues to share profound, deep, and elevating Torah ideas. The rumination that I'm about to share with you is culled from the teachings of that particular Shabbat. And what's unique here is that the Rebbe edited this talk in its entirety, adding copious notes and glosses and making many, many corrections to the text that had been essentially faithfully recorded by a team of scribes.
Mike wasn't working. As I said, I personally have spent about 10 hours studying this discourse again and again, looking at various sources that the Rebbe quotes and trying to understand the full profundity of this particular sicha, of this rumination. I know I've already eaten into 15 minutes of my time, and I know you don't have endless reservoirs of patience. So I'm going to try to synopsize the opening of the talk and take it to a head where I think the plot thickens and the information that we're looking for really starts to come together in a very, very intense way. The information, as it continues to develop, eventually reaches ahead with a particular footnote, a footnote that has no less than four glosses attached to it. The footnote is footnote 94. I'm going to pick up the narrative and the insight at about footnote 31. And I hope that you will be able to follow, understand, and appreciate the teachings, the Torah of the Rebbe, and that you'll agree with me that we are literally watching the future being foretold. But then again, to each his own, I am here simply to present the information. Parshas Vayigash, the, the second to the last Torah portion of the first book of the Torah, the book of Genesis, opens with a very dramatic narrative. Joseph appears to his brothers to be a maniacal Egyptian viceroy. He's intent, it seems, on tormenting this family of Hebrews. He seems to try to want to break the family, abduct its members, and into the fray, Yehuda, who is considered to be the leader amongst his brothers, is now thrust. The parsha opens with a spotlight on Yehuda as he draws close, that's the Hebrew word for Vayigash, to Joseph to make his case. In the opening part of this sicha, the Rebbe illustrates three possibilities, three ways in which we can see the scene unfold. The first is how it appears in Yehuda's mind. He's dealing here with a tyrant, a miserable individual who seems to have untold power, a person who wants to harm him and harm his family. Yehuda sees his father's life on the line and he pleads for mercy as he makes his case in the strongest terms possible. In this first illustration, Yehuda, Judah, the leader of his brothers, the origin of the name Jew, is standing before the powers to be, before a world that persecutes, before a world that harms and threatens the survival of the Jewish people. He makes his case with a sense of pride and quiet dignity, but at the same time, He's very much in a position of ingratiation. He has no idea that the person sitting on the receiving end of these firm words are none other than his long-lost brother Joseph. A very different perspective, of course, is the truth. The truth that Yosef is a tzaddik, 
it's a wholly righteous individual that he has orchestrated these events now to ensure that his family can be reunited so that they can proceed to experience the unfolding of their national destiny. It's been foretold that they will come into the land of Egypt as slaves. Avraham Avinu, my father Abraham, was clearly informed that his children would be strangers in a land that is not theirs. That's the essence of exile. Exile doesn't mean harm or murder. Exile at a very literal level means profound displacement. Disablement of us being able to, to be who we are because we aren't in a comfortable setting, because we aren't in a circumstance, a situation that allows us to be all we can be. Yosef is a tzaddik. Yosef, in fact, is going to be guiding the hand of the world's superpower of the day. It is through his efforts and ingenuity that the land or country of Mitzrayim, ancient Egypt, has risen to such splendor. And it will be through Joseph's efforts and curation that Mitzrayim will embrace this nascent nation or family that will come down into its midst and they will provide for them in every way possible. A very different illustration, a very different scene than Yehuda envisions at this opening moment. And the third scene or the third narrative is how all of this is seen in what we would call eschatological terminology. We talk about this, this in spiritual terms. That although the biblical figures are actual, people with two eyes, two ears, <laughs> nostrils to form a nose and a mouth, real people, according to the Psajigoyen, if somebody views the Bible as mythology or fables, tales that are but metaphoric, that they have left the building from a perspective of Jewish faith and, 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 and conviction. That's called a heretic, he says. Sajigon says that anybody who says that even a single verse of the Torah is to be disconstrued from its literal meaning is an apikoros. So, of course, this is literal. There was a man named Yehuda. He was pleading with a man who had become known to him as Tzafnat Paneach, but was actually Joseph. And he was concerned about the future of his family and the very life of his father. But there's also far, far greater meaning than literal iteration. Pshuto shomikor or pshat is but one facet, but one dimension of the Torah truth. In fact, as the Rebbe would often cite, there's a teaching of the Shalah that says, Torah The Torah is actually a loftier spiritual narrative, a spiritual reality that plays itself out in the physical, in the literal. So Yosef and Yehuda become representations of really ideas, if you will. They become, on a metaphorical term, a meeting of spiritual energy and a representation of how we, in our life, are supposed to serve Hashem. And the Rebbe talks about these, these three Vayigashes. The Vayigash at next year. Listen. Carefully. The Rebbe says 
that the Maila of Yehuda over Yosef that will be revealed in the future where Mashiach comes is embodied in the verse that is found in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. And the verse reads, Kol hanikra v'shmi, all those called by my name, ulechvodim, for my honor, barativ, I have created them, yitzartiv, I have formed them, af asitiv, and I've even made them. What's going on here in this Pesach? The Mitzudah's David says that kol hanikra b'shmi, anyone called by my name, is a reference to all of Am Yisrael. They're all called by the name of God. Whereas the Radak puts it, Yisrael nikra am Hashem, we're called the nation of Hashem. And therefore, not a single member of Am Yisrael will be left behind when Mashiach comes. No matter how far they stray, no matter where they'll be scattered, not a single will be left behind. Even though they are scattered to all corners or edges. And kol anikra b'shmi ultimately means tzadikim, as Rashi tells us. And even though they've gone through exile and suffering and deprivation, nonetheless, they still haven't forgotten Hashem and they will all come home and I have prepared redemption for them. So it's a pasuk, it's a verse that speaks about redemption. It's very clear. Although Rashi seems to finger the idea of tzaddikim, ultimately, we believe on some level, va'amechulim tzaddikim. At least euphemistically slash literally, it represents all of Am Yisro. The Mishnah, the Mesechet Avot, concludes with a quotation of this very prophecy. But it's seen not only as representing God's nation, or Am Yisrael, but rather the Mishnah, the sixth chapter, the eleventh Mishnah says, Kol baruchu. Everything, everything that God created, the in his world, was only created for his honor. And we know this because his Kol Anikra B'Shmi, whatever is called by my name, God is the creator. Everything is created, ultimately everything is called by the name of God. And so that was all Barativ, Yatsartiv, Afasitiv. I created it, I gave it the details forming it, and finally I made it happen too. So this idea is said to represent in Hasidic terminology, represents the idea of Machshava Dibura Maisa. The Rebbe sends us off to a Maimer in Lukutatayda and Pasha's Balak. And here the Maimer, the Alta Rebbe says that we have the notion of Barativ, representing an idea. It's the first, everything begins, its first iteration comes with an idea. And then it goes into the notion of communication, where there's an idea that's not just in my head, but can actually be shared with somebody else, so it's been developed and articulated. And then there's af asisif. It's even carried out. And here, Dalteneben notes there's a, there's a break, there's an af, because there are lots of good ideas. And there are many people who make good speeches. But making it happen, now that's the challenge. That's where there's usually a gap. This is the letter Hey. And the letter Hey is said in Hasidic writing to represent Machshava, the top line representing the notion of thought or consciousness. 
This is the, the right leg, which represents bringing the idea down, articulating it, spelling it out, using words or language, characters or conventions to be able to convey this idea, bring it from a lofty, maybe even subconscious realm into a manner of communication. That's action. There's a gap. A gap between what we say and what we do, and certainly a gap between what we think and what we do. But it is the action that completes the electromagnet. That gives you your frame. So the frame, the last, what really puts it all together is when the thought and the speech come into a sense of action. The verse says barativ, in intellect, consciousness. Yetzartiv, form, like forming it into a communication. Af, and then there's a break. Asitiv, it comes into action. So the Rebbe goes on to quote this mimer of the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe says that it's the tzura of the hay that actually spells this out as I just showed you. And then he says that although af, although and, represents a break in interregnum, a gap in a sense, which is indicative towards the idea that action isn't really who you are anymore. It's a step outside of yourself. That there's also a tremendous virtue. A fourth dimension, he calls it. The fourth dimension, he goes on to say, represents the value and the virtue in actual Torah observance. In actually carrying out the word of Hashem in real time. The Rebbe quotes copiously from this Maimur in Lakutatayda. And then the Rebbe quotes from something that the Rebbe says several pages on. He says, Ach, Tevas, Af, Ach, he says, Af, Aleph, Pei, but, or and, is not a good thing. It represents an emptiness. It represents a break from its origin, from its source. It represents the idea of what we would call Sitra Achra being in the dark. But he says, When we are able to take af, alef pei, these are very important words, alef pei, when we can take the af and we can develop it and we can refine it and we can harness it and we can sublimate it, then we can turn what seemed to be a negative into a positive. So there's a, a negative connotation attached to the word alef pei, af, but there's also a positive connotation attached to the word Aleph Pei. As the Rebbe goes on to suggest, quoting the Alter Rebbe, Af is Lashen Ribui. It's also, it includes, it's inclusive. It's not exclusive. It doesn't break, it doesn't represent a, a, an ending and then an emptiness, but it represents a, a wider tent. It represents an expanding of the scrimmage. It represents a welcoming in, an inclusion of something that seemed far. And even in a literal sense, it's as if to say, as the, as the, the commentaries explain, in the Pirkei Avot itself, the Medrash Shmuel says that the phrase that alludes to asitiv represents the lowest of worlds. There's a world of atzilut, which proverbially speaking represents the notion of subconsciousness. The world of bria represents thought or consciousness, as we said. The word of, world of yitzira represents the ideas being articulated or formed. And then there's the world of asiyah, the world of action. And that's the world that contains our, our physical reality. 
and that some might mistakenly think that only the highest levels were created for God's glory, that spiritual pursuit can only be found with integrity on the Himalayas, that you have to divorce yourself from earthly engagement and pleasures in order to experience a sense of real connection and closeness in order to nurture a profound bond with the Creator. That's what many people think. Many people think the world, which is evil, and is rampant with God denial is a place where godliness is concealed and can't be seen and can't be revealed, but they're wrong. The verse says, Afasitiv, I made that too. That also, meaning as if, as if the, the, the tent is spread around to include even our world. It's not excluding our world, it's including our world. And therefore it becomes a positive thing. And the Rebbe goes on to quote from the Alter Rebbe's Mimer in Parshas Balak, suggesting that Af represents then the, the broadening of, of, of the scrimmage of holiness. And the Alter Rebbe in that Mimer talks about the fourth dimension where he describes that the world, our world, represents the lowest level of creation because it's the only realm of creation in which the Creator isn't seen at all. The only place where there's a total blackout, if you will. And that's why it's called the lowest. And yet, it's that very place that Hashem desires as His dwelling. And it's when we, in the midst of this unbelievable spiritual blackout, can continue to perceive the Creator, although He isn't apparent, can continue to, continue to seek the Creator and to search for the Creator, even though it isn't easy. And then to live a life that reflects Hashem's will. That becomes the greatest of achievements. And that's what Hashem really craves and desires and wants. And in the same way Hashem is on high or known by the creatures there, Hashem craved to be known by the creatures here. And the Medrash Tanchuma says, that is the purpose of creation itself. The Rebbe adds a very, very interesting rung. The Rebbe says that all of this that the Alta Rebbe teaches is especially true in a time of Galut, in a time of exile. Because he says, for as dark as our world was, when the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed and prophecy at en, en masse, or as a regular function of everyday life was taken, in a time when people were once able to achieve a higher form of consciousness and know their Creator, and yet this world was still called a dark place. And then when we went into Galut, things got infinitely worse. And as they got worse and as it got darker, the Rebbe says, it's worse, but actually it's, it's better. The opportunities become manifold. The stakes have risen. This idea that our world, which is a dark place, is a beautiful place because of its amazing potential and possibilities is now, so to speak, infused with steroids when it's a galut kind of reality. And the Rebbe therefore suggests in one of the footnotes, that the hefsik, that the jump or interregnum represented by the foot of the hay or the assisive, is actually not only that action can also be conducive to godliness, but it represents a leap beyond whatever can be accomplished in the realm of thought and spirituality, infinitely greater things. The jump, it's a leap apart. It's a step apart. It's, it's entirely magnified on a whole new level when we reach the level of action, 
symbolized by the bottom of the hay. And the Rebbe begins to focus on the word af. And he says, af asisiv. So af is legreyasa, he says. Af has a negative connotation, but af has a positive connotation. Af, af can be experienced even, meaning it's not the natural approach. This isn't good. This is distance. This is separation. Or af is inclusion. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. It's an increase. It's a development. The Rebbe now goes to a medrash. The medrash says, Laku be'af, that when the Jewish people lost the Beis Hamikdash and were hurled into their long and painful exile, it came with tremendous fury from God as it says, You were indifferent to me, I will be indifferent to you. However, the medrash also says, Strangely, the word af is used when we speak of our comfort, the consolation that will come to the Jewish people. As it says, The very same collection of verses say, And even though they'll be dispersed, scattered in the lands of their enemies, nonetheless they will still come home. The Rebbe goes further. He says, Did you know that there is a Gemara that speaks about Torah Ba'af? The Torah is studied under fury, faith under fire. And the Alter Rebbe actually alludes to this in his mimer, and he says this is also connected to Afchachmasay Amdali. Indeed, indeed, also my wisdom has stood in my stead. So he says the deeper meaning, says the Gemara, is Torah Shalamadati Ba'af. The Torah that was studied within the challenges and the toil and the trial and the travails of Galut and the various pressures that it causes. So that's negative but it brings to a positive. The Rebbe said, based on everything that I've just told you, in the seventh chapter he says, Alpiza, based on all of this, he wants to suggest that the circumstances and the situation that are described in the end of Parshas Vayigash, in which the Jewish people are prospering exceedingly well, things are wonderful, serves as the hachana, the preparation for the coming of Mashiach. Mashiach is not coming out of misery. Mashiach is coming out of circumstances magnificent. He says because ultimately, ultimately the notion of Mashiach coming represents transforming the darkness of Galut into the light of what's called Geula. We need to transform darkness. The Rebbe says that when we live in an exilic circumstance, a situation, but still don't forget God and are utilizing the various platforms and, and situations that we have to continue to advance the cause of God and Judaism, that represents the transformation of the world as we know it. The transformation that will be fully experienced when Mashiach will come. In other words, the preparation for Mashiach coming is a world that is evolving towards a Mashiach reality. And the Rebbe in chapter 8 begins to talk about our time. He says we are living in a time in which we are experiencing what Joseph and his brothers experienced. We're living in a time of plenty, a time of prosperity, a time of goodness. The Rebbe talks about his Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe. 
whose name was Yosef. And he says, our Yosef, the Yosef of our generation. He lived in extraordinarily difficult circumstances. He endured unbelievable persecution and near death at the hands of the communists in the 20s. Finally, convalescing and coming back to his health in the 30s, he then experienced the explosive evil of World War II, narrowly escaping the Nazis as Warsaw burned. And the Friedrich Rebbe, in the last phase of his terrestrial life, experienced the plentitude of the United States, where he became a citizen, where the challenges were no longer physical, where anti-Semitism was not the worry, but assimilation instead replaced it. And the Rebbe goes on to talk about this. And the Rebbe says that when we talk about the life of a tzaddik, it says, Ma zarei b'chayim, just as his seed are alive, af hu b'chayim. He too still lives on. And the Rebbe in the footnote says, ah, af, af, alef pei, af, af has a negative connotation because the passing of a tzaddik is metaphorized as the burning, the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, but at the same time, the af zare b'chayim, the fact that we continue to live in a vibrant spiritual way, although our Rebbe is not terrestrially with us, represents yatir b'chayui, a much more powerful form of life. For two and a half pages, there is a common theme being hammered home. And the common theme is contained within two Hebrew words, af. <laughs> the words af from Isaiah's prophecies that speak about the lowest reality, action, to the notion of exilic dispersion, consequence, and punishment for our actions, but the ultimate comfort and consolation that come as being two sides of the af to be experienced. Personal challenge seen as a platform for personal growth. Af, ba'af. And finally, the end of the terrestrial life of the Rebbe that's followed by the everlasting life, the continued life, the spiritual life, which is very much a part of the fabric of this world. Again, the word af shows up. We keep hearing about af. Af means anger. Af means negativity. Af is, af represents sitra achrevel, the Rebbe says, but af can be changed. In fact, af must be changed, and af will be changed. The Rebbe speaks about the fact that we are 40 years, 40 years have gone by, he means since Yud Shvat, since the passing of the Friedrich Rebbe and, and what the Rebbe's view was, the Friedrich Rebbe's continued life, which is what Heitavis represents. In the next, very, next paragraph, the Rebbe begins to talk about, especially because the years that we are in, and now we're coming to a head, my friends, the years that we're in now spell out miracles and wonders. The year 5750, corresponding to 1990, was proclaimed by the Rebbe as Shnas Nisim, a year of miracles. The Rebbe went on to say that the year Tov Shin Nun Aleph, 5751, that corresponded later to 1991, was a year of Niflaot Arenu. I will show miracles, I will show wonders. And the Rebbe says that this is going to happen 
in the most remarkable of ways. We are going to see this year, the Rebbe said, unfold as a year of wonders and miracles. Literally, two weeks later. Two weeks later, the Gulf War broke out. The Rebbe said that Israel would be the safest place. He said, I have stated multiple times that we are living in a year of wonders. Nifloes arenu. Tovshinun aleph. And because we're living in the year of wonders, and because the way we prepare for Galut is not through death and destruction, but rather through triumph and through Torah, through plenty and through goodness, the Rebbe said that everything would be fine. And that despite the many, many voices that had spoken of fatalistic times for the land of Israel, Israel would be the safest place. Nobody can tell me about this. I lived it. I remember people coming home from Israel in droves. I also remember my grandparents moving to Israel that very winter, making Aliyah. And my grandparents asked the Rebbe if it was safe. And the Rebbe said, I have said it's the safest place to be. My grandparents moved to Jerusalem. Not a single missile landed in Jerusalem. On Wednesday, January 16th, 1991, desert storm begins at 7 p.m. This is as Eastern Standard Time. It was January 6th, 17th already in Iraq. Massive air and missile attacks on targets in Iraq and Kuwait. The American president says we will not fail. What happens afterwards? Saddam, Yamach Shemo, who the Rebbe once said represents Samach Mem Dam, a bloody demonic force, said the great showdown has begun. The mother of all battles is underway. Iraqi Scud missiles begin to be fired at Israel. The Gulf War that lasted in the Middle East from January 17th to February 28th of the year 1991, six weeks, it was a terrifying experience for all Israelis. There was trauma that people experienced that took years to overcome, but there were also many, many stories of amazing deliverance and coincidences. People themselves can decide whether or not it was a miracle or, well, stuff happens. Throughout the land of Israel, the government said, don't use the bomb shelters. Instead, you need to prepare a room in your house that's going to be sealed. Make sure there's food and there's water. Gas masks were distributed. They expected that people would have to be in tightly sealed rooms, keeping on their gas masks. And there were many, many scary predictions. What happened? What happened? I googled this, although I lived through it, just to see a documentation of it. And on one side, at least, I was able to count 35 miraculous stories, 35 miraculous stories. For example, on the first night of the missile strikes against Israel, 27 missiles were fired at once. The Patriots knocked all of them out except two. That's not normal. A missile landed in a garbage dump, but didn't explode. Another missile landed a few feet away from a gas station, but didn't explode. As the missiles began to rain down on Israel, 39 in total, one missile landed between two buildings, completely destroying them, but not killing a single person. 
several of the missiles that had been fired at Israel actually were blown into sea. Another missile was blown totally, of course, by a strong wind. Two missiles aimed at an IDF base in the Negev landed without causing any damage at all. One missile fell and was discovered to have concrete in the place of an explosive warhead. There were two missiles that disappeared from the screen until today nobody is able to account for them. There was a missile that went down the air shaft of a nine-story building with 30 apartments. Never exploded. One man was in his house when a missile hit the garden. He walked out of the house with minor injuries. An 84-year-old woman was in her home. The home sustained a direct hit. Her only question was after, who's going to help me clean this up? A man walks into the washroom just as a missile strike began. He exits the washroom to see his entire house destroyed. Another woman was in bed. Her ceiling collapses. The steel door frame falls over her bed, leaning against the wall, and essentially saves her. One woman was sleeping so soundly she didn't hear the air raid siren. She woke up from the exploding missile. She rushed to her sealed room, only to find it having sustained a direct hit. Nothing was left. There was one woman with three small children who spontaneously decided to go to a bomb shelter, contrary to the government instructions. During that attack, the door to the sealed room was blown open. Miracle after miracle after miracle. Did you know that the seasonal rains in Israel usually arrive in November? We have a whole tractate of Talmud that talks about what happens if rains don't come when they're supposed to come. The rains began in torrents on January 17th, the first day of the war. They continued almost without let up for a duration of nearly six weeks. The rain came along with high winds U.S. military sources believe that that convinced the Iraqis not to use the chemical warheads because they were afraid that the chemicals would be blown back in their direction. The Rebbe noted in a letter that he sent, a public letter that he sent after the war, that there was a gas line in Tel Aviv that had sustained a direct hit. Nobody was aware of this, and it only became public knowledge several months later. Incredibly, that portion of the gas line had been shut for repairs several days prior. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a direct hit on a main gas line in Tel Aviv? So 39 scuds fall, one person, one person, is killed directly from these missile attacks. The only one who maintained his composure throughout was the Rebbe. The Rebbe said, arenu, everything will be good. When the missile started falling, some people wrote to the Rebbe. It was a Friday. Did the Rebbe want to modify his position? Before Lichbench, an answer came out, the Rebbe unequivocally stated, as I have said, everything will be fine. Miraculously, it was. After 39 Scud missiles falling, many Israelis started creating jokes and even songs about Iraq's missile attacks. 
thinking that the light casualties, missed targets, and failures were due to poorly designed scuds or Iraqi incompetence. Until, until on Monday, February 25th, an Iraqi scud missile hit the barracks in Al Khobar in Saudi Arabia with devastating results. Two scud missiles, not 39. 27 Marines were killed, 98 were hurt in the deadliest attack of the war. Two scud missiles. 97 people killed on the spot. And that was in a Marine barracks, not in a densely populated metro metropolitan area. On that very same day, Iraq launched silkworm anti-ship missiles that were shot down by Allied warships, and somehow they missed the scuds. My friends, Tafshin on Aleph was a year of incredible miracles. One man, one man said before that that was exactly what was going to happen, and that was the Rebbe. And now, listen to what the Rebbe says about this year. I'll only finish here with an archive from the JTA, February 28, 1991. Months before the Iraqi Scud missiles began to rain on Israel, the Brooklyn-based Lubavitch had ever predicted that the Persian Gulf War would end on or near Purim. In fact, a member of the Hasidic movement, a chaplain serving with the U.S. Armed Forces, went to the Rebbe one Sunday in November to get a dollar for tzedakah and blessing from his spiritual leader. It was then that the Rebbe said to him the war would more than likely be over by Purim. The war was over by Purim. That was the year of Niflois Arena. Now listen to what the Rebbe says. The Rebbe says that this is a time in history in which we will go, that Hashem is helping the Jewish people, that there should be an amaymadumatzav of harchova, of plentitude, to go out from the meitzar, from the narrow constraints, from things which cause us pain and discomfort, el hamerchav, to a broad and spacious comfort zone. And the Rebbe says that's the way it has to be before Mashiach comes. That in Eretz Mitzrayim, in the last moments of Golos, we're living a circumstance, a situation of Vayechi. Now the Rebbe says that this all, as we stand so close to the coming of Mashiach and redemption, is articulated by King David in Psalm 89, who says, Karati brit libechiri, I have struck or cut a covenant with my chosen one. Nishbaiti l'david avdi, I have sworn to David my servant. And the verses go on to say, I have found my servant David, I have anointed him, May Hashem be blessed forever and ever. And this, the commentaries say, refers to the coming of Mashiach. It's found in Psalm 89, footnote 94. The Rebbe says, it is known, should be noted, that the book of Psalms has 150 Psalms. 150 Psalms is 15 times 10. 15 times 10. So if you have 150 Psalms, 15 iterations of 10, 
And we're talking about Psalm 89. It begins with Psalm, that group of 10 would begin with Psalm 81, concluding with Psalm 90. So therefore, the Rebbe says, that which is written in Psalm 89 is linked to Psalm 81. Pei Aleph. The Rebbe says, ah, Psalm 89, which is the Tehillim that we were saying, corresponding to the Rebbe's years that year. The Rebbe spoke about this chapter of Tehillim many times. He says, Psalm 89 is connected to Psalm 81. Psalm 81 in Hebrew is Pei Aleph. And the Rebbe says, ah, Pei Aleph is the same Hebrew letters that make up Af. You remember what Af is, right? Af. The Af, which could mean even or but or anger. The Af, which has a negative connotation and a positive connotation. So this represents, because Psalm 89 speaks about Mashiach, and because Psalm 89 concludes or is at the end of the segment of, ch of chapters of Tehillim, beginning with Psalm 81. And because 81 in Hebrew spells Pei Aleph, can be spelled Pei Aleph, Pei as Af, but it says in 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 Af, it's Oisi Asaf, but Besedir Hafuch. It's the same Hebrew letters as Aleph Pei, but it's the other way around. And the other way around, Psalm Pei Aleph represents the transformation of Af, Ligreusa, of Af in a negative way, to Af in a positive way. So Aleph Pei is Af, that's negative. Pei Aleph is the transformation of the negative into the positive. Let me reiterate this. We've talked about this at great detail. The Rebbe devoted an enormous amount of the Fabrengen to focusing on the word, the Hebrew word af. The Hebrew word af, which represents a very dark, difficult, and negative set of circumstances. The Hebrew word af, which will and can be transformed so it becomes Lamal Yusa, as the Rebbe had demonstrated copiously during the course of this Fabrengen. And he says, therefore, Pei Aleph, not Aleph Pei, instead of Af, Pei Aleph represents, you listening careful? Pei Aleph represents, Rasha Tevis, represents abbreviation or acronym for Plois Arenu. I will show you wonders. Plois Arenu. And he says the emphasis here is on that being revealed, Hadgosha al Hagilu Basar, it should be seen by everybody. Arenu means I will show you. Not you will have to look for it and see it. God says, I will show it to you. I will show it to you does not require a microscope. It doesn't require perception. It's shown to you. There's an asterisk here. The Rebbe says, Plois Arenu, Pei Aleph, is along the same system of the year in which the Rebbe is talking, the year in which the Rebbe is predicting miracles and wonders, which all unfolded. This is, he says, Kehorasha Tevis, just like the abbreviation for this year, 5751. Tovshin Nun Aleph, Tovshin Nun Aleph, he says, It will surely be a year in which I will show wonders. In other words, the Rebbe is highlighting Pei Aleph and connecting it to Nun Aleph. He's highlighting the new year, which we will call in the secular calendar 2021. 
he's connecting that to 1991. He's saying that the year 5781 is linked to the year 5751. He says the words Pei Aleph are an acronym for Plois Areno. And the Rebbe alludes directly to the concept of a year. The Rosh Hashanah that is going to come in a few days is Rosh Hashanah Tov Shin Pei Aleph. The Rosh Hashanah of Plois of wonders Arenu, I will show. We have not experienced such disruption as we have during the year of Tav in modern history. If you talk about Af Ligreyasa, if you talk about an even or a break, a disruption, an interregnum, we just experienced that. Exactly what the Rebbe describes, a break in emptiness and interruption. Life was disrupted that it was telling us that after that disruption and that negativity comes plois arenu. To me, it's abundantly clear that we seem to be hearing about a prescient view of the year that's about to come. Now this is just part one because the truth is that this little footnote has no less than four glosses attached to it. And that'll take me, oh, I think, another hour or so. I'm going to save that for part two. I hope that you found this inspiring, as I did. And I also hope that you'll join me tomorrow again, Bezrat Hashem, for part two of this incredible discovery. The deeper messages, the full range of the incredible note that seems to be telling us that the year ahead is one in which Hashem will, Amir Hashem, be showing us wonders to be continued.